Hello and welcome to another episode of the Erwin Mitchell podcast. My name is Ted Powell and I'm a solicitor in Erwin Mitchell's sports sector team. Today we're continuing our series on athlete welfare in sport and we're going to focus on injury management and prevention at the elite level. As we all know, elite sport is an ultra competitive environment and teams and athletes that can reduce their injury rates and shorten their recovery times can gain a competitive edge that can be the difference between winning and losing. Putting this pretty simply, the more players that you have fit and available, the more chance you have of success. And in this episode, we're going to look at the role of physiotherapy, nutrition and technology in relation to injury management and prevention. And we're also going to look at some legal considerations in relation to these areas. And I'm very pleased to say that I've got some fantastic experts to give us insight into these areas of injury management and prevention. So uh, to introduce them all to you, firstly, we've got Nick Worth on. And Nick is an elite sports physiotherapist at the Physio Clinic. He's got 20 years experience in elite sport, working with the likes of Fulham, Burnley, West Brom, England Under-21s, Manchester City Academy and the Kenyan Rugby Sevens. And he's also an expert witness on cases involving medical law and sport. Nick, it's great to have you on. Is there anyone else that we should add to that list of uh, impressive clubs that you've worked with? Uh, no, I think I, I think at the moment that sounds uh, makes me sound far grander than it actually is. So <laughs> thank you very much, Ted. No problem. And I'm also very excited to introduce Dr. Chris Rossimus. Chris is the men's lead performance nutritionist at the Football Association, working with the England's men's football team. And he's got previous experience working with England cricket, Aston Villa and Leicester City. Chris, would it be fair to say that you are the person who decides what Jack Grealish has for breakfast? Not quite. There's a couple of nutritionists actually who work alongside me and um, I can't take full responsibility for that. But anything strategically and the overarching plan, I can, um, I've got a bit of knowledge around that area. Fantastic. And, and next, we've got Rich Buchanan. Rich is the performance director at Zone 7. And Zone 7 is a data-driven artificial intelligence system that accurately forecasts increased injury risk and enables high levels of athlete performance and availability. And before joining this role at Zone 7, Rich has eight years of experience at Swansea City as a performance physiotherapist and a performance director. Rich, I'm delighted to have you on. Uh, tech and sport is something that I'm very interested in, but is all a bit above me. So it's going to be great hearing your knowledge on this. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. Hopefully I can uh, contribute to the conversation uh, in, in a way that uh, stimulates thinking. But um, yeah, absolutely delighted to be in such esteemed a company. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will, Rich. And last but absolutely not least, I'm very pleased to say that I've got a fellow lawyer on. We've got Ian Christian from Erwin Mitchell and Ian's a partner in our medical law team. Ian specialises in medical sports issues and has represented various elite athletes and works closely with the Rugby Players Association. Ian, thank you very much for joining me and, make sure, and making sure that I'm not feeling too lonely as the, uh, as the only lawyer on the podcast this week. Thanks for inviting me. Very looking forward to talking through the issues and you and you can help me along with the legal bits when I, when I get stuck later on. I hope so. I hope so. So before we jump into it and start looking at the role of physiotherapy, nutrition and technology, I thought it'd be good to take a step back and actually just take a moment to understand the types of injuries that we're, that we're going to be thinking about. 
So concussion in sports has been spoken a lot about recently, but we also hear about the reduction of soft tissue and hard tissue injuries. Nick, as the physiotherapist on the, on the podcast today, I'm going to come to you and, and ask you to explain a bit about what hard, hard tissue injuries are, what soft tissue injuries are, and some examples of each in sport. Yeah, I guess it's probably easier to go with the soft tissue injuries first is essentially soft tissue is anything that is kind of connective tissue within the body. So it's sort of muscle, ligaments, tendons, that type of thing. Now, there's an element of that where, um, you know, going over on your ankle is one of those things that might be an accident if you're running and you twist and sprain your ankle by not landing correctly. But particularly when you're involved in sport, if you're looking at things like pre-season training, it's about being able to manage and prevent those preventable injuries by loading and sort of working the individuals correctly, not overloading them when they're tired, that type of thing. And realistically, that's that's a lot of where we've spoken before about with Rich about like zone seven with the, the intelligence of actually the loading of individuals and, and injury monitoring. So that's kind of soft tissue injuries. Your hard tissue injuries are kind of essentially everything else. So you might be looking at fractures. You could be looking at concussions, uh, joint type issues. That's where you're looking at those as a hard injury, which tends to be the ones that are possibly a little bit longer, may, re- may require surgery or other intervention to help help recover, really. Thanks, Nick. That's really helpful. And I think for those coming into this with, uh, without too much medical knowledge, it's, uh, it's interesting to know that bones can also be referred to as, as hard tissue. That's certainly something that, that I've already learned from, uh, from today's podcast. So thanks for that. Now let's jump into it and really hear about how each of you use physiotherapy, nutrition and technology to prevent and manage injuries. So I thought it'd be good to just go around and hear a bit about yourself, your role, and how you use physiotherapy, nutrition, and technology to manage and prevent injuries. So Chris, I thought I'll come to you first on this. Can you open up with with a bit about nutrition and how you use it in relation to injuries? I think uh, from a a nutrition perspective, I guess I've been in practice now 10, 12 years, I've probably, my approach to nutrition and injury has changed quite a lot over that period of time. I think because our understanding of the role of nutrition that it can have in, I guess, the prevention and the treatment of an injury has changed as science has, has moved on and moved on and developed. So there are some fundamentals that have always been the same. So when I was starting, starting out in my career, into my early days and into my time at England cricket and my time now in football, there are some fundamentals that I think will always be in place irrespective of the technology that we avail from. So I think the most important thing actually before I talk about the nutrition and the technology is it's the information and the connection that you have with your MDT. So with your doctor, with your physio. For me as a nutritionist, we're not always as quick as the doctor or physio does. So how we interact and the information and how closely we work with our doctor and our physio is, I find is crucially important because the stronger that connection, the better our communication and knowledge about an injury, then the more um, deliberate and the more bespoke that I can be as a nutritionist with the interventions that you start to put in place. And then depending on the nature of the injury that, you, that you've been presented with, it's really figuring out what stage of the injury that individual is, is at, what phase, are they immobilised? Uh, is it a bone injury, soft tissue, for example? And then you can start pulling in the inf- the areas around nutrition 
that can that can start to have an impact. And I think the fundamentals around around fueling are how much fueling the body will need to to deal with that injury. There'll be an element of manipulation around macronutrients that will be needed to be considered if a player is immobile and not and not as active as they would normally be. There's considerations around reducing muscle wastage if they're inactive for a period of time. So you start to look at protein intake and how does that need to be increased, for example. And then I guess the most sophisticated we've got in recent years is how science has evolved and got a lot more sophisticated and better is around management of injuries, for example, tendons. If there's a tendon injury, there's now different science and different understanding of how to treat and prevent and accelerate someone's I guess, injury status through through applying science in a way that's pragmatic and, and evidence-based so i think it for, for me it's it's having really good connections and communication streams with your mdt really understanding what the injuries you're dealing with and being contemporary with what we're what we're advising but not moving away from the fundamentals too much yeah hopefully that answers your question ted no that definitely does and and I just wonder if you've got any examples that, that might be interesting to hear of, of different food groups or, or different foods that you use in, in relation to particular injuries, such as, say, tendons, for example. Are there any kind of new or exciting uh, foods that, that you're looking into and that, that have an interesting impact? Yeah, so what's, what is new? So what is, when I first started off as a nutritionist like 12 years ago, collagen and, and that collagen products were not as prevalent as they, as they are now. So gelatin and collagen have, have really gathered evidence in the last five to six years in the, in the, in the prevention of and the treatment of uh, a tendon ligament injury. So that's something that we use a lot as a prevention during the prehab. So every, every player we work with, there's always a, a, a prehab or a warm-up phase. 30 to 45 minutes before that, uh, in various levels of, of practice, there's uh, a collagen or a ligament or a supplement or a, or a, a whole food that's been made up by our chefs, which delivers... Have a, have a gelatin. If it's homemade, you can. You've got a good chef who works. You work well with. You can create nice, tasty gelatin, like mini snack items that also provide vitamin C. And those two components together have been shown to help the kind of nourish the tendon and help improve the cross-sectional area of the tendon. So it's been used as a. It's used generally as a as a as a prevention method, but also when there is a presentation of a, a ligament injury. Really good evidence and research by Keith Barr and his group have shown that during that rehab phase, when the player is, is returned to loading and they're doing some tendon loading, a good 30 to 45 minutes before that kind of rehab session starts, if you, if you ingest the collagen or gelatin and vitamin C combination over time, um, that can improve the kind of cross-sectional area of the tendon and help accelerate the, the healing process, which if you look into influence an injury recovery through nutrition again that's that's one of the most um the newest and you know strongest innovations i would say in the last few years that we that is quite commonplace now yeah thanks for that chris that, that's really interesting and i think you hear discussion around carbohydrates and proteins and the impact that they have on on, on fueling and also on muscle recovery, but it's really interesting to hear about new food groups that are being discovered and the impact that they have on uh, other aspects of, of performance, such as um, ligaments and tendons and stuff like that. So, so really interesting to hear from you on that. Nick, 
I wonder if you'd be able to tell, tell us a bit about the role of, of physio and how physio can be used to, to prevent and manage injuries and um, your kind of personal experience of, of using it at, at the elite sport level. You know, you'd, you'd be guessing at things because you saw how much someone was working. Then the kind of integration of things like having having heart rate monitors and monitoring the loading that way. Then there are certain different blood tests that came in. And then now it's going to be that actually, you know, your GPS and monitoring across the loading that people are doing on a regular basis and how much they they sort of work within every week as well as every match and then every month. Those types of things are probably the thing that's changed the most because you're starting to get good quality data and it's being, you know, you kind of know a bit about every every aspect of their life. So it's not always just about what they do on the field, but also how much rest and recovery they get. Just like Chris said before, that working with a multidisciplinary team to have input from all the different practitioners, whether that be the medic, the physio, the, the masseurs, as well as the strength conditioners, fitness coaches, nutritionists, you know, it could be a psychologist, it could be someone who's a specialist in sort of a sleep coach. There's all of these different aspects that come together to look towards performance. You know, teams were very small a few years ago, you know, they'd be the the uh, archetypal sponge man as being the physio that was working but now the you know these top teams have a massive organization behind them and it really is the the learning that you can get now from looking at other sports and different disciplines that you can sort of identify an area that works within football or that works within rugby that's been the real change in terms of when you're looking at about an injury Injuries still tend to heal at the similar kind of rate. You know, the body will heal at a certain rate. You're looking for those, and I know it's a cliched phrase now of marginal gains. You're looking at that sort of every little bit that you can give the extra one or 2% to either make someone come back fitter or stronger, or whether you're going to hopefully do some prehabilitation work that's going to prevent them having a similar injury later on down the line. And I think that's really the, the key. Again, when I started working, and I'm sure it's probably the same with Rich, when you started working as a physio, a lot of the time the physio was doing the rehabilitation in the gym and on the field. Whereas now, because you have specialists in that area, you'll have rehabilitation therapists or you'll have strength and conditioners that will do that sort of specific work so that everyone's a little bit more targeted, a bit more specialist in their area. And it's the working together so that you might have a physio that is a bit more of a diagnostician. There'll be the people to diagnose the injury, decide the right management plan, and then bring in all of the different practitioners at the right time or the right reasons to be able to get them back on the field. Like I say, healing times have not hugely changed over the years, but the way that you can actually build someone up and progress them to get them back to their full fitness, that's probably the change in things. But this is the team that makes it better than it used to be. That's really interesting, Nick. Thank, thanks for that. And I think already we can see a, a, a real recurring theme in that it's a team approach to, to injury management and, and injury prevention. And, and um, all of the different health professionals at a club need to work together. And, and Rich, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how technology can be a part of that team and specifically how... AI going forwards could become a key part of this health team that are making sure players stay fit and, uh, and avoid injuries. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ted. Um, I, I do think there's some common themes that have been brought up by, um, by both Nick and Chris. And I think 
in the first instance, there is this, I guess, team approach, multidisciplinary team approach, which generates lots of opinion, lots of input, and in essence, lots of data. Uh, and if we look back, I suppose, over the last 20 years, there is some research that says, actually, despite all of this, not much has changed in terms of soft tissue injury rates in, in professional football, for example. So the question that I think we're left asking ourselves is, well, why is that? And, and there's lots of moving parts to the potential answer to that. But one of one of the areas where I think um, technology and AI is, is, is trying to, I guess, assist all these various different professionals um, is understanding the information that, that's being generated. So what I would say in, in the last decade or so of my time working in, a, in the professional game of football is that we've been measuring more and more elements of, you know, player management, injury prevention type work and therefore generating more data. And the challenge really now is with all these different specialists um, working in, in quite narrow lanes, having to collaborate for, you know, a preventative outcome in, in the best case scenario and a, and a positive rehab outcome in, in an injured case scenario is that there's lots of data. How do we make sense of it all? And in a team environment, how do we do that every single day for every single player or athlete? It's getting to the point where it's or it's beyond the point where actually there's enough data for AI and machine learning to be impactful. And there's too much data, in essence, for humans to manually, I guess, analyze it all in a, in a really time efficient manner. So that's that's where I think AI and machine learning is coming in to answer that pain point to try and make sense of all this this explosion of data that's happened. And then it's it's understanding what AI machine learning is and what it isn't. By that what I mean is it's there to inform professional experts like Nick, like Chris and others that make up an MDT on what the data is saying. What it's not doing is telling them what to do. And I think that's a, that's a bit of a misconception and a fear that perhaps has been articulated um, out in the industry. But essentially, the ultimate decision making still remains with, you know, the, the humans that make up the MDT, including the player or the athlete themselves. Um, but fundamentally, AI and machine learning is trying to give that insight that's that's invisible to the human eye at this moment in time. That's really interesting. Thanks, Rich. And I think it's going to be brilliant hearing more from you uh, throughout the course of the, this episode, um, just because I think the potential for, for AI to come in and really revolutionise health in sport is uh, is massive. And it's certainly something that we're beginning to see find its way into sport, but perhaps it's not too widely seen. And going forward, I certainly think that this could be something that teams across all different sports, as well as individual athletes, uh, are utilising to, to really maximise their, their performance. So great to hear from you and looking forward to, to hearing more. And Ian, I want to come to you and ask from a, from a slightly different perspective, but how do you think the law and sort of duties of care can come in and and protect uh, players and athletes and and prevent them from getting injured and help manage their injuries? 
Yeah, I think the often when sort of law or regulations, rules are referred to, people get a bit scared because it's like, oh, well, if something goes wrong, there's going to be a sanction that's wrapped into all of this. And then it sort of it presents a certain mindset because it's actually, well, if there's a law involved of, or any regulation, then you know people are looking to avoid falling foul of that rather than using it as a tool to actually support, you know, whatever area that you know they're trying to sort of consider. And it's exactly the same in relation to sport and sports injuries. You know, it's not if people shift the mindset from rules and regulations being a stick to beat people with and actually look at them as a tool to support the development and progression of whatever end is trying to be achieved, then I think you know, rules and regulations can be used in a different way. And I think, you know, to try and sort of, you know, put some specifics into that, the when something does go wrong to sort of flip it to the other end, what actually is going on is the law is trying to assess objectively you know what should have happened and, and what could have happened um, differently and it's not you know it's all built around reasonableness and so on and what we often find is that people have convinced themselves in any circumstance that actually their subjective assessment was the right thing to do and they were actually sort of implementing the right treatment pathway or whatever because subjectively we've all got those bias and that bias then influences the way in which treatment's being provided but you get to the end position and that's completely flipped on its head and it's well objectively was that the right position to have adopted and so I think you know, from a technology point of view, particularly, and I was interested in hearing Rich's contribution there, that, you know, surely technology and the data collection begins to sort of assist with displacing those subjective bias that can go on and convincing ourselves that actually we're doing the right thing. Well, let's use the data as has been mined and, and producing the, the output that comes through. And in doing that, it presents a different evidential base for us to assess the way in which treatment has been provided and then ultimately if you play it through into a legal context well you know how does that run alongside a judge when he's doing an objective test you know surely it must help that technology has been involved to say well yeah this is what we felt from a subjective clinical position absolutely that's the fundamental foundation block but we've also used the data that's been provided elsewhere to make sure that we weren't misleading ourselves and then you know, playing it through in the scenario of the sort of the legal context, you know, if there is a, an outcome at the end, which is not desirable, you know, it puts people away from the position of being criticised if they've actually had, you know, an objective uh, input at the time they were making the decision previously. So, you know, they're my initial thoughts that I think, so, you know, we can we can talk about the way in which, you know, injuries can be prevented through you know analysis of the regulations and so on but the the clinicians you know on the call will actually sort of add more to that as to how best to build protocols and so on but you know, in relation to just using the rules and regulations in the context of the law i think you know that's the way in which i would be encouraging you know teams to to assess those regulations and try and shift that mindset to being one of well how do we make sure that we're looking at things objectively and and also avoiding any of the pitfalls that that might arise yeah thanks ian that that's really interesting and i think um it's a great point you make about needing to shift the mindset on rules and regulations and, and seeing them as um, a positive tool to really add benefit to to uh, to the careers of, of players and clubs as well. And I think 
you can look at some specific rules that, uh, in my opinion, are really positive influences on on sport. A few that jump to mind, if you think about the introduction of the of the winter breaks in, in football, we saw in the Premier League in 2019, that was widely welcomed by players as, as, as they were able to get a break over winter to recover, to um, refresh themselves and get over any kind of niggling injuries. Also, you can look at rules and regulations introduced about the actual gameplay itself. So in rugby, we're seeing really quite fantastic rules and regulations coming in about tackle height to help mitigate the risk of concussions. And you can also look at rules in sports like cricket, where they've put limits on the amount of bounces that can be bowled in and over to, again, mitigate the risk of, uh, of serious injuries from, from that fast bowling coming up at kind of head and shoulder height. So I think all of those those rules are, are, are really positive additions to sport. And rather than being seen as a, a negative kind of bat to, uh, to, to, to knock against clubs, it's, uh, it's a really positive step forward to look after the welfare of players and make sport a more um, attractive and, and less, less, risky, less risky game to play. So next, I thought it'd be interesting to cast our minds backwards and think about some major developments that we've all seen in relation to physiotherapy, nutrition and technology over the last five years. You've all touched on some really interesting points in terms of the development of these areas, but I wonder if there are any specific examples or particularly relevant points that you think have really developed uh, over the last five years in, uh, in the world of sport. I'll open it up to anyone who wants to, to jump in on this, so uh, I'll be interested to hear, hear your thoughts. Well, I, I guess if, if I sort of dive in uh, to, as a starter for 10, as far as that's concerned, I think one of the biggest things for me is real-time data. Because previously, it was always that you'd be, you'd be getting a lot of information via GPS or heart rate, and then you'd analyze the data after the game or, or after the training session had finished. And so you'd always be looking retrospectively. You know, the event's gone, and then you're, you're looking at that as going, well, okay, tomorrow's session has to be different because of what you've done today. The, the real-time data that things are played out is very much now you know, if someone's working too hard, if they're not working hard enough, you know, coaches and, and strength and conditioners and, and fitness trainers have the ability to alter what they're doing straight away. The the obvious kind of development of that is when you're seeing, you know, within Premier League football and, and obviously in, in elite rugby, you know, you're seeing all of the analysts sitting alongside the coaches to be able to make making either either tactical changes according to, to you know to the work that people are able to do you see most players now have a gps monitor whilst they're playing in in competitive games so that you know the coach is more informed so whilst you could look at that in a in a recovery of physical performance there's tactical elements as well and so that real-time data and the ability to change things straight away you know hopefully is going to be positive not only in the quality of the game or the or the competitive element but also it's going to be looking after people as well you know because you're able to ch make changes that are positive that's really interesting nick thanks for that uh, certainly something that i hadn't realized but but of course real time data is a huge development in the last few years that's really influenced how uh, how athletes uh, are managed chris i wonder if there's anything in the world of nutrition in terms of potentially views on it or actual nutritional plans that have been put in place that, that has changed dramatically over the last last five or so years? Hard to say what's changed dramatically, but I think where my practice has evolved significantly is 
is looking closer at the individual and at work. And, I, and I've gone, it's almost gone back to um, being a lot better in the fundamentals of, of fueling around nutrition. So when I first started, it was, I, I believe, it was, my perception and my, my recollection was nutrition advice was a lot more generic. It was around, around team sports in particular. So high carbohydrate day, you see a traffic light system. If it's green, it's high carb day. If it's red, it's low carb day, et cetera. A buffet would be presented and there'd be um, a hope I would say a hope that that players would be able to navigate their way through that buffet and fuel adequately for performance in a match day minus one. I've always found that quite a um, a limiting and a, and a flawed approach because you don't quite know what the individual is actually going to consume. Do you know if they've got a few? Are they working towards a fuel plan? Is it based on their individual body weight? So where my practice is, and I can only talk for myself, significantly evolved, is that. We aspire and we strive to find a t- what I call a tactical fuel advantage through really bespoke fuel planning with players. So going back to the basic science and thinking, right, how many car- how many carbohydrates does that player need to eat on a match day minus one based on their body weight? So we're delivering them on the pitch a full t- muscle tank of glycogen. That's the basics. That's what is what's true. That's where the evidence is. So actually going back going back there and working really harder with the individual to work that out. To show them actually what that looks like on a plate by plate, meal by meal basis, and then coaching them and working with them one to one really well, so they can go to a buffet and actually construct a meal that's bespoke to them meal by meal, rather than just hoping that they're going to have more carbohydrate. So rather than taking the guesswork out of it, being much more deliberate of how a player fuels, and then you start to use data. You know, there's good information. The GPS is is, is always available, but ultimately. That generally that tells you how much they've run in a in a in a, in a period of time. Where data is getting stronger now, in, the, in the, where we operate, it's actually what is the physical what is the cost from a of that of that bout of exercise rather than just running 11k. How much of that was really kind of um, extensive work, intensive work, and that that by default will have a, an impact on how they recover the next day because everyone will recover differently. So everyone everyone will will respond to a, a stimulus differently. So the more you know about that, the more you can use that information. And then you start to use that to align a fuel plan that's more performance focused and about the player. Because whatever, no matter what we're talking about through prevention of injury, rehab of an injury, we're still trying to influence what the player does through the way they fuel, the way they refuel. So I, the way I like to use data is to give me more confidence, A, as a practitioner, to, if I'm going to tell someone to do something I have to be super confident that I think it's the right advice. Then I have to show them how to do it. And we've started to use scoops that, I guess it is data, but scoops that have got digital scale built into them. So rather than just using just a spoon and saying, right, put three scoops of carbohydrate on your plate. Um, In some cases where I've coached individual players, particularly when I worked with other teams in, in the pathway, it's actually being really deliberate and using these digital scoops to figure out how many grams of carbohydrate we're starting to eat. And then we can start thinking about what I call a fuel gap analysis for the player. So we're using data to analyse gaps. There might be no gaps, so that's positive confirmation that players are doing the right thing. But actually, we might identify that there's a few gaps, and then that's for me, that's genuine performance impact. So it's it's trying to use all the all the information. I mean, working working really hard to make it really kind of applicable for the player that you're actually genuinely going to influence what they're putting on the plate. 
if it's not, and I also ask myself that question, is it influencing what's going on the plate in that meal room? If it isn't, then I question, um, is the intervention worth it, worthwhile or is it, is it just wallpaper? Because it can, can become that. And we've all been, I've been guilty of that many times. It's so, you know, if you ask back to your question, what's been more significant change? For me, it's been much more deliberate with how I approach um, my work on a one-to-one level. That's really interesting, Chris. Thank you. And, and I think, again, we're seeing uh, another recurring theme here in that data is, uh, is running across a lot of aspects of, of injury management and prevention in sport. Nick, we've heard from you about how data is now being used uh, to give real-time updates on players' performances. Chris, you've touched on how data is being used to build folk nutrition plans for, for players. So, Rich, I'm going to come to you as, as the data expert and ask what developments have you seen over the last five years in terms of data and sport? And if you could perhaps pick out some of the most significant, I think that would be really interesting to hear about. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ted. I, I listened intently to what Nick and Chris both had to say. And, and what stood out to me was individualisation. Um, I, I do think that from a data perspective, we're having this explosion of, of hardware that generates data on the individual, um, whether that's data related to a physiotherapist discipline or, or a nutritionist discipline or, or another discipline. And it's, it's this just massive explosion of, of volume of data, which is the biggest thing I think I've, I've seen change in the last five or 10 years. You know, we're now able to measure and objectify lots and lots of things that perhaps we weren't able to do beforehand. So all that considered, for me, it's about making sense of it all. And by that, you know, I hear the the statement, do the basics well, or conversely, you know, do the do the marginal gains as well, but do the basics well. I, I think making sense of all this volume of data is part of doing the basics well now. There's good data and there's bad data, and I think it's the professional discipline or expert that's that's collecting the data to be able to determine what's good and bad and and, and sort of sense check themselves that they're they're collecting good data. But the other thing that I think over the last five years that is also being sort of heavily considered is it's the data points that sort of give a an indication of what the athlete is like over a 24-hour period so you know initially i would say there was lots of data collection going on that that was a a snapshot a time reference point of the athlete the player being in a training facility maybe you know nine till three for example but the blind spot was the rest of the 24-hour cycle from, you know, 3 p.m. right the way through to 9 a.m. the following day. And I think there's now data generating hardware that's that's giving an insight into the athlete from a 24-hour clock perspective. There's some moral questions around how intrusive that potentially is. So there's, there's considerations there. But, um, you know, the ability, I think, to collect an awful lot of data, you know, 24-7 essentially um, it is the biggest change and then I think that the current state is okay as a professional MDT what does it all mean how do we make sense of it all and how do we make decisions that positively impact the athletes on the data that we've collected plus the the bigger contextualization of what's going on in uh, in the environment at that time. That's really interesting Rich thank you and I think the phrase that stood out to me there is that, is that term an, an explosion of data over the last five years in terms of how much is being collected. And I think coming at it from a legal point of view, that obviously raises some really interesting legal questions about ownership and 
control of that data and, and I think it's just important for for anyone harvesting these statistics from players to, to have a think about who owns that data how it can be used and just to ensure that they're complying with the various duties that you have as a, as a data controller that's certainly something that we've seen seen more of and I think uh, project red card is an example of how questions are already being asked of, of how data is being managed in sports so an interesting legal development that's come off the back of this explosion of data in terms of mon monitoring performance. So that was really interesting to look back. And now I want to turn our, our gaze forwards and think about developments that you expect or that you're excited to, to see uh, in relation to physiotherapy, nutrition and, and technology going forwards. So I'll be really interested to hear about anything that you can see in the pipeline that you, you think will be revolutionary in, uh, in, in this area. So again, I'll dive in again. I, I, think, I think from my point of view, um, I think in terms of, uh, you know, what Rich has been talking about, about the amount of data is really key. And it's about understanding which bits of data are important and which aren't so much. And, and the experience teaches you that as to, as to looking and, and deciding. I think the biggest sort of developments that are going to come on are probably part of what's going on anyway in terms of, um, you know, the mental and, emotion, and emotional well-being of athletes that's changing. You know, it's very different because, you know, there's always the, the club that sort of pushes the player because ultimately it's about winning games or winning matches you know, it's about the performance and actually getting that, getting to, to the pinnacle of whatever it is. But I think the way that things are changing is actually realising um, that those people who either don't make it or who do suffer from injuries that are uh, career threatening as, or career limiting. I think that's probably something that is really important that we need to be aware of. Certainly, I think now, you know, when you're looking at, I know we're kind of not necessarily particularly talking about concussion, but, you know, if, if a, if a, person goes into sport be it a young boy or girl at sort of 12 13 14 the likelihood is that by the time they hit their 20s 30s they're going to have suffered some form of injury now you do everything you can to prevent that but you know is it something that is going to be you know do you have to sort of sign a waiver at that time it's a very different environment and it's about understanding the well-being of the person emotionally, uh, financially, performance as well, you know, how much of an impact it makes. And I think that support is going to change a little bit because it's not now always about the ones who succeed. It's those other ones who are left behind. I think the mindset is probably being focused on on that aspect of, of, of well-being of athletes who don't make it. I think that's going to be interesting to see where it falls. And, and actually, probably the medical legal world will be the, the lead of that as to deciding what actual support is put in place for someone at every stage of someone's career. Yeah, that's really interesting, Nick. And I think that that aligns to some of the conversations that we've been having uh, in relation to experts on, on mental health in sport. And there really is a, a growing awareness for it. And people are realising the importance of mental health in sport. And I think there's a real strong link between injuries and mental health issues and mental health struggles. So a growing awareness for that going forward is certainly something that I, I think we'll see. Chris, in terms of nutrition, is there anything that you're looking forward to or, or expect will develop over the next five or 10 years? Yeah, I guess two areas. The first area was linked into what Nick was talking about around, around concussion and traumatic brain injuries. It's, it's a, an area I've not got a great deal of knowledge in, um, but there is some early research out there which is looking at various nutritional interventions around that. Around that. So I'm really interested to see where 
well, that will go. It's obviously very topical at the moment. And also the impact of nutrition on the menstrual cycle in female games. So at the time of the FA, I did spend three years working with the lionesses as well. That was an area that gathered a lot of interest and there's a lot, there's a lot of a lot of interventions around nutrition, which can support different stages of the menstrual cycle. I think it is still quite inconclusive at the moment, the impact that it actually has on it from a, I guess, a performance and injury prevention point of view. But it seems to be what excites me about that. There's a lot to talk about it. And there, seem, there appears to be a, lot, a real thirst to drive and understand more about it. So I'm really interested to see um, where that goes and to see if actually nutrition can play a role, play a role in that because the potential impact is, is, is really big. That's really that's really interesting, Chris. And I think the point you make about about women's sport is a brilliant one. And I wonder just if we pause on that for a moment to think about any differences across all the areas that we're looking at. So physiotherapy, nutrition and, and technology between uh, elite men's sport and, and elite women's sport. Nick, I'll come back to you. Do you see any differences in, in how you might treat a, a male athlete that's been injured compared to how you might treat a female athlete that's been injured? Well, yeah. I mean, the one thing about it, I think previously is it was always just assumed that, you know, any athlete was the same. And it's about I know that, you know, Rich has mentioned about it's the individualization of the of the management plan or the treatment plan that's really key. So, yes, there obviously sort of are physiological differences, hormonal differences, menstrual cycle, just like Chris says. But I think the biggest thing that's probably changed from that is actually you know, women's sport. And if again, probably women's football, something I've seen more of than women's rugby. But the idea really is the fact that actually it's being taken seriously. There's more interest, there's more finances. And so therefore the support structure and the support backup team is ma- is massively different. A few years ago, um, you know, women's football was was quite poorly funded. And so often, you know, as a, as a kind of uh, an external consultant physio, I'd often see quite a few female athletes who'd played the women's game had gone to see their team physio but it was you know someone who was earning a couple of quid wasn't necessarily very well supported they were quite inexperienced whereas now you know women's football or women's rugby now has a good quality team proper finances are starting to be put in it so it's it's about having the opportunity for female athletes to have access to the same level of expertise, support, and uh, and all that backup, and I think that's probably the change. So yes, you do treat people differently, but you would do every time anyway. Everyone's an individual, and you you try and alter it and tailor your management and, and treatment plan accordingly. But I do think the biggest thing is that actually women's sport is being taken seriously. There's a lot more focus, and and I know it is about money, but actually the money coming into the game does change things. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point point you make there, Nick. And I think it's important to make that link between big sponsorship deals and big broadcasting deals and the positive effect that that can have on, on injury management and, and, in, and injury prevention. I think sometimes you just see a sponsorship deal and you see it as just a load of money just coming into a, into a club. But to see it filter down into the provision of more, more physios, more, more nutritionists, more analysis puts it in a really positive light. Ian, I'll, I'll come to you on this. Do you have any thoughts on on either the future of, of law and injury management and prevention or the differences in between the treatment of men and, and, and women in relation to this area? Yeah, I was interested in both Chris and Nick's points there, actually, because I think what's important um, in relation to the regulation side of things is that you, know, it, you simply can't roll across the men's rules regulations guidance into the women's game on the back of the points that have been made there are other considerations to take to be taken into account 
And I think there's a danger that as the women's games in all sports sort of takes off, that, you know, governing bodies don't take sufficient care in just making sure that their rules, regulations, guidance takes account of the differences that exist and ensures that they're fit for purpose for the women's game, rather than just assuming that the men's game and, and the work that's been done in that area will be good enough um, in the women's field. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think as well as bespoke physio plans, as well as bespoke nutritional plans for, for men and women, we also need to think about bespoke rules and regulations to make sure that both sides of sport are properly governed. Chris, do you, do you have any more thoughts on this? Yeah, it was just to echo Nick's uh, comments around resource and investment in sports science services and particularly nutrition. I think that um, you know, I can't speak for all the, the clubs, WSL clubs in the women's game, but I do believe that the level of investment of nutrition, if that was looked on greater, I think the impact is really, really big. I do think the impact of nutrition is relatively under underutilised. And a lot of the time you see, even in the men's professional game, across a lot of sports, the nutritionist is, is a consultant. They, they can be in a day a week, day a month, two days a month. More full-time consultants, three days a week. The different models, but I do I do believe the more the more present and the more investment there is in a, in a, a nutrition service where nutritionists can really get the teeth into a, into a programme and have a really considered strategy and have the time and the headspace to look at data, look at what it means to the players that they're working with. I actually think that could be a significant change in the long term because then, I then believe you start have better, having better influence with the players. So I think it's the investment and where the investment is 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 given and how much um, yeah, how much of a push nutrition is actually, how, how, how seriously it's, it's viewed on as a, a genuine performance kind of impact service really. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And, and let's hope that investment does keep coming into women's sports so that important aspects like nutrition can really be be developed in, in that area. Rich, I wonder uh, if you can tell us a bit about what you expect to see in relation to, to technology and AI over the next 10 years. I mean, for me personally, I think this could be a, a huge area of, of growth and I'll be really interested to hear your thoughts on on that. Yeah, sure. I think we're already witnessing uh, elements of, of perhaps what the future looks like in respect of, you know, well-resourced organizations adding data science, software engineering, machine learning experts to their multidisciplinary team. Um, so not only have we got physios, nutritionists, doctors, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, so on and so forth, there's there's whole data science departments that make up this mdt obviously that kind of uh, service is not always readily available to everyone there's budget constraints to that but beyond the personnel issue i think what the next 10 years looks like from certainly from a tech perspective is that ai machine learning will very much hopefully give an insight into the future now without wanting to coin a and visions of a, a, a phrase of visions of an 80s TV program, Tomorrow's World, you know, we very much at Zone 7 anticipate that we can potentially give a glimpse into tomorrow by considering projected data sets. So through harvesting of big data, 
knowing what an athlete's kind of routine and training flow state looks like, what their physiological and physical state looks like, um, and maybe mental well-being state in certain circumstances looks like. If we input typical data flows into a machine learning AI system, we can project future potential injury risk forecasts, which then gives people like Nick and Chris and other members of an MDT sort of food for thought on, okay, if this player or athlete may spike um, an increased injury risk by following their normal training routine two, three, four weeks in advance, you know, is there proactive considerations that we need to think about and then interventions that we need to take to, to mitigate that risk. And, and that's the direction of travel I think we're going to go in over the next decade. Zone 7 is already offering capability um, and, and development in that space to, to our current client base. And that sort of development thread, if you like, is born out of three verticals. One, certainly from a football perspective, I touched on it before, there's, there's an industry pain point where soft tissue slash preventable injuries haven't really changed in the last 20 years. So there's a there's an industry pain point which touches on player well-being. There's a performance pain point or implication that, you know, days lost to injury leads to, you know, reduced performance on field. And, and there's research out there that shows, I think something like 270 days um, lost per injury leads to, you know, the loss of one place in the Premier League, for example. And then there's a financial implication. So, you know, Athletes, players that, that aren't competing um, because of injury, there's a business implication for the clubs, the organisations, if they're still paying contracts or for the athletes who are paid on performance. So, you know, there's a number of drivers there forcing, you know, thinking and development and innovation into this space. And, and that's where I see the next 10 years going uh, because of those reasons, this, this sort of injury risk projection forecasting. Like I said, it, it's it's here now. It's only going to become more advanced. And then I just wanted to touch on the the men and women scenario from a from a tech perspective. Is very much, I think, historically, as has been alluded to by the guys, there's been a a, a sort of one way works for men, therefore will work for women historically. And that that thinking has changed now with with experts like we've got on this call. And it's the same for data and AI, and that you can't just lift and shift what's working for men in terms of algorithms and, and injury risk forecasts and drop it into a women's game. It has to be specific and bespoke to, to the female game, whether that's football, rugby or, or other sports. Um, so some of the challenges for the, for the women's sports are collecting and harvesting enough data, the stuff that already exists in an Thanks abundance in the men's game. And I think um, um, and then, great you know, as made. that's done, and like the then phrase, making sense uh, of it all in the, the same way that we're, that we're doing with the we men's game. It, whether so it's injury risk forecasts technology are readily available law, for female athletes as they are for, can't for lift male and shift athletes. It from men's sport to women's sport. And I think a, a key point that I've certainly taken away from this discussion is the importance of building bespoke plans for, for female athletes rather than just assuming what will work for men will work for women. Ian, I want to ask you about the, uh, the legal uh, considerations in relation to this uh, changing landscape on injury management. We've heard some really exciting developments that uh, the guys think could happen over the next five years. Do you think that could have any implication on the duties that, that a club or a governing body might, might owe to their players? And, and how should governing bodies and clubs look at these developments uh, in relation to their, their legal duties? Yeah, thanks, Pat. It's been 
fascinating to hear sort of about the, you know, the predictions of injuries and the work that can go on and, and, and the future. And oddly enough, my response to your question actually goes all the way back to first principles. And I think, you know, as we move into a new world where we are looking at sort of what data can do, what technology can do to support clubs, players, governing bodies, etc. The most important starting point, I still think, is the seminal legal case of, of Michael Watson against the British Boxing uh, Border Control. And that was associated with a fight that happened in 1991, so quite a while ago, and it took a while to get through the court system as things do. But I'll, I'll gallop through that, but I, I promise I'll bring it back to present day and actually the sort of the relevance. But I mean, essentially, Michael Watson collapsed in the final round of his bout with Eubank and he had a subdural hematoma, which basically a bleed on the brain and pressure building up in the brain. And he was um, he had collapsed had seven minutes before he had any medical intervention and then was taken by ambulance to a North London hospital. That took about half an hour. And then he was transferred to another hospital in London where they performed neurosurgery. But by that point, he'd suffered brain damage. And that case introduced a huge analysis of the medical care that had been assessed uh, as being necessary and then implemented you know, on the on the night of the fight. And interestingly enough, the British Boxing Board had been in discussions about sort of the need for medical care. They had two doctors on site. And so, you know, back to that subjective bias point that I mentioned earlier on, you know, on first impressions, you know, they had something in place which looked like it was actually, you know, reasonable and looked like it was sufficient to um, provide medical care you know, in the boxing environment. The reason they lost that case was that just having two doctors there, you know, wasn't deemed to be adequate because the doctors weren't equipped to deal with what the court found was reasonably foreseeable. That actually, if you're going to have a sort of, you know, I was going to say heavyweight boxing, they weren't heavyweight boxing, but if you're going to have an elite boxing fight, you know, you are going to expect that, you know, that there is a real risk of a subdural hematoma developing. That had happened in other fights. The British Boxing Board had already had consultations around sort of the need to address this and, and how it might play through. And anyway, it was deemed that, you know, just having two doctors there wasn't enough when, in fact, they weren't in a position to provide the immediate care that was necessary should a subdural hematoma eventuate, which it did. And that was basically to be able to intubate um, the patient stroke boxer. And so just having the two doctors as a you know, it looked fine. And actually, on first impression, you think, well, that, that's good enough. They've got two doctors there, but they were not equipped and skilled to be able to provide the treatment that was necessary when the significant problem played through. And so you know, that's the factual background. The relevance of all of that to modern day is that, and I'll, you know, I'll quote the actual judgment, you know, when this went through the Court of Appeal, it said it was the duty of the board and of those advising it on medical matters to be prospective in their thinking and to seek competent advice as to how a recognised danger could best be combated. And I was fascinated to hear Richard's contribution there to be saying about the fact that, you know, the more data and the, you know, it has to be good data that's harvested in the way that can come together to actually lead into injury risk prevention. You know, that is that is perspective. That is what the court was expecting. You know, analyze what might happen. That's all reasonable, what may be reasonable and, and so on. But then ensure that you've done what is necessary 
to have in place the, the appropriate regimes and support. And obviously, you know, the Michael Watson case is a very stark case. And it's the sort of thing where it's actually right. OK, that's quite sort of sobering to, to run through all of that. You know, but turning it into that positive that we were talking about earlier on, you know, avoiding the litigation side of things. Surely if you have got you know, a means to be predicting injuries, to actually be working in, you know, with the data not only does that support the commercial element of, of elite sport, not only does it support actually having the best players out there and therefore the spectacle of sport being, you know, what it, what everyone would want it to be with the best players playing, that they're optimum. But it also means that you have satisfied and discharged your legal duties to have been implementing prospective judgment and, and ensuring that you're doing what you can to protect player welfare, but also obviously the integrity of sport. That's really interesting, Ian. Thank you for that. And I think it's important to remember that as well as the uh, impressive results on the field that um, implementing technology can have, there's, there's also potential benefits legally in terms of clubs mitigating any risk of, uh, of being at breach, in breach of their, of their duties to, the, to their players. Um, guys, that's been an incredibly interesting discussion. And unfortunately, that's all, we, all we've got time for today. But um, I just want to thank, thank you all. So thank you, Nick, Chris, Rich and Ian, all for joining and, and contributing to that. I've certainly come away, come away from it with some very interesting uh, food for thought. And I'm sure that our listeners have as well. To those listening, thank you for tuning in. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast and that you've, uh, you've taken something away from it. And do tune in going forwards for more uh, thought-provoking discussions on, on athlete welfare and sport. Thanks, everyone, and, uh, and we'll speak again soon.